today we're talking to Tony. Hi, Tony. Hi. Uh, Tony is the creator of Fullcrow, and he also runs a consultancy around Fullcrow. So if you're using Fullcrow and have any questions about it, you can always reach out to him. And we will just try to dissect Fullcrow today. So why did you even start with Fullcrow? So Fulcro really was born out of a problem I was asked to solve. And as, as are most problems, it's the problem you end up solving ends up being a different problem than potentially you were asked to solve. Um, so the, the real problem that was, was being had is a common problem in, in a lot of companies. And that's that engineering had just become unruly at this particular uh, place I was working. And, you know, they just had huge tangled messes and, I was brought in as a lead of new software development and was told basically to shake the place up. That was, that was the rough, rough instruction <laughs> of what to do. And, you know, that was that went from everything from agile management of people to tool selection to what have you. Um, and so really Fulcrum was born out of a combination of trying to solve a number of those different problems. And one of them I was trying to solve was, okay, how do we, how do we do sustainable software development? That is, how do we keep it from degrading over time into this tangled mess that most people um, uh, end up in, especially in startups or in companies where they don't know how to do SaaS or there's not enough like management experience. Um, and so, you know, at the, at the that's really kind of the the framing of it mm -hmm. um, and so from a tooling perspective i was looking at what are the various things that get you into trouble and so i knew i wanted you know a functional programming language i knew i wanted immutable data structures like i'd, I'd worked in uh, when i started folk actually i'd most recently worked in scala um, mm -hmm. and so we did kind of this evaluation where we we looked at you know, F sharp and Scala and C sharp and Java. And we just put them in a, in a spreadsheet and started listing off the things that we wanted from our, our tooling uh, mm -hmm. to help us uh, write good software. Now, you know, that should always be taken with a grain of salt because really your tooling isn't going to help, isn't going to make it so that you write great software, right? It's, it's, that's a, it's really a people problem. Mm -hmm. um, so really what you're, you really should be asking yourself first is, uh, you know, do you have cross-functional teams? How is your organization managed? Um, you know, do you improve your engineering skill sets? Uh, you know, are you trying to make sure that people aren't just busily typing as fast as they can? Um, right. And, and are really, you know, stopping and taking the hammock time to design the, the solution to call out problems. Uh, you know, Google did a, uh, uh, a study on their own uh, engineering teams, while I, actually, while I was there, um, it was one of the better compliments I, I ever got from one of the engineering teams I've managed. Uh, mm -hmm. One of my my team members read this Google study and they, they said, hey, have you seen this Google study? I was like, no, what is it? And they said, well, yeah, they did this study and they said of all their teams, they have, you know, teams with like, you know, these these really intelligent, bright people on them and they have these teams with with this, that, and other thing. And, and over all the different factors that they tested for the most important predictor of a successful productive team was emotional safety. Mm. That was the number one thing. Like if you're, if the people on the team feel like they're going to get squished, if they, if they point out a problem, Hey, this sucks. Why are we doing it this way? Um, uh, then they won't speak up. 
And if you don't mm -hmm. speak up, you just got like a little rat's nest turns into a bigger rat's nest turns into a bigger one. So at the end of the day, if you're using vanilla JavaScript and you've got that kind of team, you're going to make a decent product, right? You're going to have reasonably sustainable uh, uh, development. Okay. So really, when I was looking at, at creating Fulcro, I was already in the mindset of, okay, we're going to try to build good teams. Okay, mm -hmm. now, once we have good teams, what can we do with the programming language and tool set to make their job easier? Right. So I, I feel like it's always worth framing, framing the discussion with that, right? Um, we, we, too many engineers are way too, they're way too focused on, does it have this feature? Can I use, can I use hiccup instead of function calls? Can I, right? They just, they talk about all this minutia and the minutia matters in these small little ways, right? Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's convenient, sometimes it's whatever. Um, but if you're not looking at the bigger picture, you're going to be really fast at the start. And then your productivity is going to tank every time. Right. Don't care what tools mm -hmm. you use. Okay. So let's, let's assume that what we're going to do is have a healthy, emotionally safe team. And they're going to call out problems. They're going to have a management team that understands they can't push you too hard or you just make a mess and everything slows to a halt. And right. You've got, you've got all the people problems solved. I, I really envy you if you're there because it's a really right. hard, that's the really hard one. Um, if you've gotten there now, what do you want from your tooling? Well, um, you know, we as closureists know the benefits of a lot of these functional programming uh, things. You know, there's a lot of research around these. There's a lot of, of good things that come out of referentially transparent functions and immutable data structures. And, and so, you know, back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, you put out this spreadsheet that says language A, language B, language C, language D. And then on the rows, we put, you know, what's important to us. Well, immutable data structures. Okay. What's the relative weight of importance, you know, one through 10. Okay, and then how do we rate that language on its support for that, right? So something like JavaScript has immutable data structure, uh, you know, libraries out there, but because none of the other libraries interact with them very well, they're really not very usable um, for a large project. So you can say that, well, there's support for them, but maybe it's like a two, right? Because it's not first class support. Um, so anyway, we went through that and, and closure was what won. In terms of, of, you know, all of the, the various things that we're rating in terms of, you know, I mean, Scala, Scala takes a huge hit just for tool performance. I don't know if you've ever worked in the language, but, you know, there are blog posts about, you know, you, you can find 10 page blog posts on, you know, what you, what you can do to figure out why your 600 lines of Scala takes 30 seconds to compile. Like, you know, just like, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a neat language. I really like it, but um, pragmatically it, it it lost some points just from that. So, yeah. so mm -hmm. just to put an additional perspective, uh, we were talking about building like web apps. So like front end, back end stuff, right? Front end and back end stuff. Yeah. So, so the, mm -hmm. the context that I work in, uh, yeah. and have worked in for most of my career is business software, right? So if, if mm -hmm. what you're doing is graphic visualizations in three dimensions, yeah, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not the guy to, to look for tools from. Right. That's not my experience. Mm -hmm. That's not my tool set. That's not what I'm designing for. What I'm aiming for is kind of the common business problems. You're going to have some forms. You're going to have some reports. Uh, you're going to have some full stack kind of issues. You know, if you're running, mm -hmm. if you're writing this in JavaScript as the front end and, you know, a thin back end where it's mainly just a database and some APIs to, to push and pull data, uh, you're in a distributed system. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, and all sorts of complexities arise as soon as you put yourself in a distributed system. And so, yeah, we, we moved from this model where everything was done on the server and you weren't. You weren't in a distributed system, right? You had mm-hmm. people running like or seeing, right? You had remote terminals. Right? You had a view of it right. and you interacted with it. And then you pressed a button and then all the processing was done on the server. You could start your transaction in the database. You could do all your operations. You could commit it. You had a clean story. Um, when you when you when you move the, that to the all that logic to the front end, um, there's complexity you just added to your problem, and not incidental complexity. This is real complexity you just added to your problem, uh, and so you really need to, to take that into consideration. So so yeah, so that's what I was looking at when when designing the original you know software stack. First of all, let's choose a programming language. Uh, then it was, okay, what kinds of problems are we going to have over time, right? I wasn't just looking at, okay, what's the quickest and fastest and easiest thing to get going with? Uh, I was looking at, okay, what's not going to, you know, what's going to help us um, in, in various ways, right? Because there are all sorts of aspects you can look at in terms of your languages and tooling uh, and, the, and the problems you're facing um, to see how you might solve those. So uh, can we split this somehow into like, you know, maybe what kind of problems can we solve with Fluker on the front end and maybe on the back end and then everything in between? Yeah, I think we can we can kind of delve into them, you know, possibly in, in, in segments. It's kind of hard to separate, in my mind, uh, the front end from the back end when you're talking about business software, right? They're just, they're just connected, right? Uh, it's you might have some concern where oh I want to be able to do yada yada fancy animation, right? Right. My general <laughs> my general approach to that sort of thing when when product managers come to you and say I wanted to do this fancy schmancy thing uh, is okay. Well, let's really consider the engineering cost of that because you might double your cost <laughs> of engineering that feature or more just to get that. You really going to be able to like if you've done the sales analysis, right? We're so like glitz addicted that uh, that we don't properly weight things sometimes. But but really, uh, when you're looking at what the thing does at its center, always these applications, business applications, at least they're pulling some data from the back end. They're formatting it in a way that's you know hopefully appealing, but a lot of that can just be done with CSS uh, into a UI form on the DOM. Mm-hmm. The DOM is a mutable thing uh, in the browser, so there's a bit of of you know actual complexity that we're running into that we don't like and we'd like to isolate ourselves from. Uh, so we've got the data fetch problem, we've got the DOM problem, um, and then we've got the interaction problem. I want to send a command to the server that I also need to change my UI to reflect that change? And when do I do that change? Do I wait for the server to respond with a, yes, I've done that, now I update the display? That has a very sluggish kind of feel. Um, or do I potentially do an optimistic thing, potentially even cache the the instructions I'm gonna send to the server over time? I mean, this is what we do with uh, forms very often, right? We let them make multiple changes and then press save, which also gives them the ability to undo. You know, these are kind of the the operations and considerations. So, we could start with, um, uh, let's say, the data fetch problem. That's probably the one that's 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 most obvious when you look at Fulcro. That's that's there, but not there in others. 
why didn't you, for example, use the refrain on the front end? Right. You know? So when we were looking at libraries to adopt, I mean, that is at first, uh, this was a radical enough move, just, just suggesting closure that I was expecting we would just be using it on the back end and mm -hmm. the front end would just be some vanilla JavaScript thing. Right. I figured that was as far as I could push the current engineering teams. And it turned, turned out I couldn't even push them that far, but, um, uh, it was, it was, it was a good effort. Um, so when we see now, this was 2015, I guess, mm -hmm. Bruce Howman had just given his talk at, I believe, Closure West on fig wheel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the community was generally a buzz with, Oh, have you seen this hot code reloading, uh, story of like Om and, and such, uh, yeah. in closure script. And so we looked and watched a few of the talks and it's like, oh, this is just like a no brainer. We really need like this helps with sustainable mm -hmm. software development, like just being able to edit the thing on the fly and not have to reload, click back through the interface, get where you want. You know, we don't have to sell closure script listeners on, on the model, right? We love it now, but that's what, we, that's what got me looking at it. Um, but remember I was already in the mindset of business applications, full stack data exchange, um, and, and so I started looking around at what options were there. Um, and Ohm impressed me. I liked the, you know, I was impressed by the time travel uh, feature there, which, you know, you can kind of get with any of these now, now that they've all decided that, okay, this one central atom is the, is the place we'll put all the state. So you can just keep snapshots of that. Um, but at the time, still reagent, I think, was the primary contender in the space. I don't think reframe, I'm not sure if reframe had been released or if it had, it was very new. Uh, I think, I think just, it might've just been reagents and I looked at reagent and, you know, nobody had figured out that you, you should put, you know, this, this kind of normalized centralized data, uh, in there. So it just looked like, oh, we're going to pepper essentially this thing. It's holding immutable data, but really we're peppering this kind of mutable thing all the way through our UI. That doesn't sound like right. The right answer to me. Um, and so really at the time Omnext wasn't out yet either. Uh, Om looked the most interesting, but then the, it had the whole cursish thing. And I don't know if many of your listeners have, have, are even familiar with it. It's long enough ago now. It had some things about it I didn't love. And so I started looking at just like the thinnest wrapper around React that I could find. Uh, and I think it was quiescent at the time. And we actually started building something on top of that. It's just like, let's just get something that's super simple. It's sort of the approach Reframe ended up taking with, okay, reagent does this nice thing for us. Let's put better, you know, modeling around it so we can, we can do a, a bit more, you know, some nice abstractions around it. And what we were working on was this, okay, how do we get the full stack story integrated with this nice functional UI? And then David Nolan's talk landed on Om next. And that to me struck me as the right answer. Right, the the graph query uh, normalize that into a front end database. You know, I've been around for a while. I've been working with databases a long time. It it, it I really wanted to be able to use Meteor, but I don't know if, if you've even tried Meteor. It is not a great experience. Um, but it it's one of those things where you're like, this is a great idea. 
But right. at the core of it, the great idea is really the fact of having some sort of real database on the client. It's unfortunate they, you know, they had to choose Mongo as the quote real database. Um, but uh, you know, they did that for, you know, because they were also trying to get this you know, like push update scalability problem solved at the same time. Like they were trying to solve too many problems at once and ended up with something that didn't solve any of them well. Um, so I really liked the idea of the normalized database on the client and the being able to, to say what you need from the server accurately, right? Not this rest mess um, and get that folded into a normalized database and then feed your UI from that. Right. So, uh, so we kind of abandoned our effort, you know, around quiescent uh, and, and started trying Omnex. Well, for anyone who's tried Omnex, that's, it's it's not designed uh, in a way. It, well, I don't want to hurt David's feelings. I think it's got some brilliant ideas, but I don't think he ever intended it to be, or maybe he did initially intend it to be a production ready sort of library. But mm-hmm. he, he either you know petered out on it, or you know for whatever reason he never finished it, or maybe he felt it finished enough for exploration of his ideas. But I didn't find it pragmatically useful. Uh, the idea that you write this parser on the client to pull the data back out of the database to feed the UI is not, it's a nice pure concept, but it was this multi-pass parser where the, you know, the UI was one pass and then it, the remotes were another pass, one for each remote. And it was mm-hmm. something that, you know, when I looked at that, I'm like, how do you scale that over a team in production over time? There's just no way that's going to scale. We're going to come to a halt, right? You're going to touch the parser. It's going to break the entire app. Um, and, you know, we'd be dead in the water constantly. So while I liked the core ideas, I didn't like the implementation. But I didn't dislike the implementation enough to just throw it out. There's a lot of good code there. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll try to put some wrappers around this so you don't need to write the parser. Mm-hmm. So that was the first version of Fulcro, right? It was just, let's make Omnext more pragmatic to use in a team for production software. That was, that was, my, mm-hmm. that was my goal. Um, I felt like, you know, David understood the the graph problems better than I did at the time. And he had these ideas around it. And it was, you know, it was a worthwhile investment to just trust, you know, his opinions on that part, but then, you know, point out where, hey, this isn't going to work for us. Um, so, so that's how we ended up with that. Um, and, you know, to be honest, we really didn't look that hard at other solutions because, like I said, the main one that was on the radar was reagent and that just felt like, you know, embedded state everywhere. Um, so, and then, you know, from, from here, kind of the state of where we've gotten today, like if you, if you asked me, well, if you were starting today, would you use reframe? Would you use, um, uh, you know, Hoplon or, or, or something like that? Uh, the answer is maybe. Um, I would still want the the queries and the graph and the the folding into a normalized database and and like there's a lot of stuff in Fulcro that I think brings a lot of value um, and I think the structure that I ended up with you know partially out of inheriting it from Omnext uh, it brings some value too um, so I'm not particularly fond personally of things that are centered around event systems as their central mechanism of, of dispatch. Um, to me, the observer, the observer pattern is really useful for, I wrote this piece of code 
um, like a browser, right, in C++ or whatever. And I want you to be able to embed your little JavaScript program in here. And I, I want I want to be able to make it so that this button that I wrote in C++ can tell your code something happened. But I don't know what your code's going to look like. So you can give me a Lambda and I'll call it, right? That's that's fine. That's a great kind of of hookup thing. It's 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 got locality of reference, right? You can reason about it. You can see it happening right there. As soon as you start throwing things like event bubbling in, like in the DOM, uh, it's it's convenient. It's what kind of what you need for that particular circumstance to get certain features, but it gets harder to reason about. And as soon as you start designing programs, large programs around a system like that, where I put, I, I send out to the ether some, you know, some blob of data and some arbitrary number of consumers can glom onto that and, and have various side effects and reactions to it. It's convenient and easy, and it's great in the small, but it's rife with all sorts of potential problems, and it's generally hard to trace. Like I think in, in Reframe, if you didn't have Reframe 10x, your life would be pretty miserable a lot of the time. Uh, right. On larger projects, just because you're just like, where, where, why is that happening? I, I've had, you know, I've had users report that you know ported from uh, those kinds of systems to to Fulcro. Yeah, you know, we would our teams would like remove uh, this, that, or the other thing because it was no longer needed in this one screen. But it turned out that that the side effect it was doing was being depended upon by this other screen. So moving that thing from the event bus, so to speak, that was side affecting broke things and it was hard to trace down why. And it, it made you like afraid to touch the code. Well, that's antithetical to sustainability, right? If you want your team moving quickly, you don't want them being afraid to touch the code. They need to be able to comprehend and navigate the code and event systems break that. Um, they're really great. Like I said, if you, if, if what you can do, if you can get your team, uh, Again, it goes back to the team. If you can get your team to, to center around the, the some some base principles, we're going to design orthogonal features where you're going to use these event-based systems, but they don't you know they don't side effect outside of that component, right? There's some screen that comes up, and then you, you write it as this unit in one say one namespace where you've got all that locality of reference. It's easy to find things. Yeah, you could spin off a million of those different screens, and as long as you're following that pattern. You're going to stay. Mm -hmm. You're going to stay staying, right? However, once you get in the thick of it, most businesses, um, you know, they're throwing all these features at you. People are trying to work independently. They're 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 not collaborating. They're not enforcing these these rules, you know, that 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 locality of reference, and and the whole process suffers. So if you solve the people problem, you can use those. But my my. Uh, assertion is that when you build large systems purely based on sort of event-based models, mm -hmm. they end up with with these problems that are really hard to diagnose and follow. And it's really because things are disconnected. And the disconnection brings you some benefits. I don't want to discount those. It's absolutely true. That, that ability to say, I want to tack this thing in that just listens to this existing stream of events is a very powerful feature and concept, but it's one that should be used, you know, in, in the situations where that's really necessary and not as a primary programming construct, in my opinion, mm -hmm. for large software where you've got this, this, this kind of problem. 
Mm -hmm. So how this problem is solved in Fulcro then? Right. So in Fulcro, uh, well, you kind of have to understand a number of the concepts to see uh, how you end up with a solution to this problem. And, and some of the concepts end up being criticized and in some cases fairly for, for being, uh, I, I don't like to call them boilerplate because there's actually a purpose for them, but in some limited circumstances, they are boilerplate. There's stuff that you really mm -hmm. don't technically even have to do in Fulcro, but most people do them just because it's, it's easier to code that way in Fulcro. Um, okay. So there's a, there's a pattern to it. So in Fulcro, uh, what you're doing is you're you're building components that co-locate their query and ident. And but when I say ident, that it's just a it's an identity. Uh, so this is a concept that's been adopted by even you know the JavaScript world. Uh, if you've looked at uh, Apollo, uh, they've got a, a, an I/O system where you you you, know, you can compose. I don't remember if they let you compose the query across components. I think they do. And now they've got a thing where you can specify this component uses this, you know, key out of the map it gets as its ID, mm -hmm. so that it can auto normalize your your things, right? So the idea is, say for example, you've got a, a person in your database, you might have a component that's a person list item. It's how you show a person when they're in some list, and then you have another component that's like the person form, and it lets you edit all the things about a person. Well, those have two different queries, right? The person list item only needs to know maybe the person's name. Whereas right. the person form needs to know just a whole boatload of, of attributes. Well, if you're showing those side by side, um, the name in that list item on one side is this, should be the same exact data in the database as the name in the form. So as you change the form field, it should be changing in the list. right? And this is where normalization helps you out. So if you know that person list item has person ID 2, and you know the person form has person ID 2, and you've normalized the database, so person 2 is in the same literal map in your database, well, when the form modifies it, the, the other thing just naturally gets the refreshed view because your, your rendering is a function of that, that literal data in the database. The query That's where the query is pulling from. So, so what you're doing in Fulcro is you're, you're doing that. You're composing, you're putting the query fragment Remember, this is a graph query. So this is where people get confused. This is not a subscription. So, uh, and this is one of the biggest sticking points, I think, one of the biggest problems I think people have. They look at the component, they see the query, and they go, okay, that's going to go grab that data. Well, from where is it going to go grab that data? Because the query on person says person first name, person last name. There's no context, right? Whose first name? Whose last name? Right? It's a fragment. You're, you're saying on that component, here's what this component needs to know in order for it to render correctly. And then the ident on the component says, when you have the correct data for this component, here's where the ID of it will be in that data. Right? So let's say I give you a map that says person ID is one, person first name is blah, yeah, Tony K, right? Yeah, right. When I get that from the server, um, I have I have queried using the component, the person, let's say I queried with the person list item component. It doesn't matter which component I, I query with. I sent the query fragment that said I need the first name and last name and the ID based on what other parts of the query are there. We'll talk about that in a second. And the query, the query comes back with, okay, this is person ID one, here's the first name, here's the last name. I take that data now 
and put it in the person table at ID one with first name and last name. Mm -hmm. because, because I can use the components definition of here's where the identity comes from to analyze the map and say, oh, the ID is in that key. So I can just pull that and then put that in the right place. But again, it's a query fragment. So how do I decide which person I'm loading? Right. So, so that's where the, the query becomes a graph. If I've got a parent, the parent component might be the person list, right? It's not the person, mm -hmm. it's the person list. And the person list has a query that says, I want all the people. And I want to join that to person list item, right? You name the component, not the subquery. You name the component that's going to give you the subquery. So now you've got a query that says, I want all people, and that's a join on the graph to that subquery on that component over there. Well, now I can send that query to the server, and the server sees, hey, I want all people, and for each one of them, I want their ID, first name, last name. Well, now the server responds with, okay, here are all people. And then under that all people key, there's a vector of maps, person, you know, person ID one, person ID two, person ID three, right? And so because I told it which component I was, I was querying with, that's actually added as metadata onto that query fragment. And so when the response comes back, I can say, oh, those maps, those use person ID as their key. I can go and put those all in the database. And then I can turn those into references, pointers, basically, to those table entries and hand the list component, or actually normalize the list components data into the database as a list of references to those items in the database. I see. So that's why you said it's not a subscription. It's like a reference. It's, it's, not, it's not a subscription. It's a query fragment. And the query fragment is just used for, well, it's used for two things. It's used, first of all, for when you issue a load on a, to a remote, and a remote can be anything that can supply data. It could even be local in the JavaScript VM itself. But mm -hmm. the idea is, is you're sending an EQL query. So EQL stands for the Eden query language. It's a standard that uh, Wilker Silva and, and I came up with. Basically, we just took David Nolan's idea of this subset of datomic pull syntax and formalized it. I made a library out of so it. So this is, yeah. This is the second concept. This is so first is first was the normalized queries and the items, if I can group them together, mm -hmm. and then this is the second concept, which is the EQL. I, I wouldn't consider it necessarily a concept. This is just the standard okay. for what you write inside of these query fragments, right? It's 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 the syntax of them, and it looks just like datomic pull. So if you're if if you're list if you're if you're familiar with datomic pull, uh, you know to ask for a, a scalar attribute, you you or to ask for stuff, you make a vector, <laughs> and the things you want to ask for uh, are keywords in that vector. Those are scalar things you're asking for. I want this or that or the other. I want person first name, person ID. Right? You just stick keywords in the in the map, and then if you want to, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, in the vector. If you want to join, you create uh, a map whose key is the key within the context you're currently in, right? So if I'm in person ID, person name, I might have person children inside of a submap. And the person children would then have a reference to another component to say, and here's how we get the stuff I need for each child. All right, so EQL, yeah, EQL is just, it's just the syntax of these queries. Um, mm -hmm. And then what, what Fulcro is doing is asking you to 
build those queries up by putting the fragments of them in components, and then the joins of those queries join your data model of your components. So if I have a person list and person list uh, queries for uh, person list items, perhaps person list items queries for person spouse, right? Which is another graph edge back to another person, uh, which, yeah. you know, et cetera. Like in the, these components, really the whole reason you're defining different components for them is each component in this particular case might have a different rendering for that particular thing, right? You could certainly say, I'm going to make one person component and it's going to query for all these things. And EQL supports a recursion operator. So you can say, I want person name, you know, first name, last name, children. And the children query is a recursive repeat of what I just asked for. Right. And so then that gets you a subtree that's as deep as it needs to be. Right. Your children have children and their, their, their children might have children if you're a great grandparent, whatever. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the those are really the primary two concepts of what's going on in a fulcro component. You're saying what you want, and then you're able to compose that, and then you're able to take one of those kind of like subtrees of your UI, uh, say this person list, and and then abstractly issue a load. I want to load all the people into that component. Right. Right, and it can just go so, grab the query off that component, get the full subgraph, send that to the server. Server satisfies it, normalizes into the local database, UI refresh. That's what mm -hmm. Fulcro does. Right, and this is mainly the problem you described before, where people are starting to change some kind of subscriptions from here to there, and then something breaks because the subscription is different as it was. And in this case, each component has its own sort of declarative way to say this is what i need and i don't care if someone changed the other component this component is just like independent from everything else. correct correct so so to me subscriptions in the sense of data uh comes from some source that is completely abstract to me is mm -hmm. an orthogonal feature right right I can implement in Fulcro and in fact have on certain projects, I can implement in Fulcro something that like on component did mount and component did unmount or as a hook uh, does a network subscription to a WebSocket where the server auto refreshes my data. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing about the ident and query is heard by that. In fact, it's, it's really helped, right? You know exactly what query is going to be sent in that subscription and what data is going to be updated to you. Uh, the hard problem of that kind of subscription is the server, right? It's figuring out when the data changed. Mm -hmm. um, so I, that's not a problem I feel like Fulcro needs to solve. That's a problem that's that's a much harder problem that has to do with your server. Fulcro already gives you a beautiful tool for making it really easy to implement. So if you want a mm -hmm. meteor-like experience in Fulcro, it's actually fairly easy to get um, in terms of the UI. Um, mm -hmm. So So I really didn't want to couple myself to that uh, that particular uh, narrow alley is what I see it as. What I want to do is this very general, here's the query, here's how you normalize it. The mm -hmm. problem of when you get it, who you get it from, and how often they give it to you <laughs> are all separate concerns, right? Yeah. The component mm -hmm. should not be concerned with those. Um, mm -hmm. Those are higher level application concerns that have their own life cycle. They have their own logic. They right. That's just not something the component should be solving. Um, you know, when I suggested a moment ago that you put like your subscription in component did mount and drop it in component did mount or put it in a hook, 
I'm not sure that's necessarily the best idea. I mean, it might be fine for certain cases, but it's certainly not a general purpose thing that I want to tie people to. All right. So you mentioned EQL and uh, you mentioned Patham. Should we talk briefly about Patham? Sure. So, so Wilker and I kind of started, uh, Wilker still is the guy who, who uh, wrote Pathome. And mm-hmm. just, just so, you know, this kind of set, set up what Pathome is. Pathome is a way of building parsers that can understand EQL such that you can hook them to an arbitrary data source. Um, and mm-hmm. it's a CLJC library. So you can actually write Pathome parsers that run on the client. So for example, you could install one as a focal remote that accepts mm-hmm. EQL and then goes to REST servers and gets the answers and turns them back into the proper shaped response. Or you could put Pathome on the server and have the EQL come in and have it go out and grab the result, you know, resolve the various things from an SQL database, right? So Pathome is essentially an adapter library that solves the problem of, okay, I've got this graph query. How do I put data in the answer, right? How do I, how do I build the response? Um, mm-hmm. And so what happened was Wilker and I both actually started working on similar solutions to Omnext's problems. Like he had the same, the same concern about Omnext as I did. Oh yeah, I know my team's not going to be able to maintain this parser thing. That's, that's not what I want to do. He had started coding his own solutions when I open sourced the first version of what I had. And mm-hmm. he looked at it and went, oh yeah, that's better than what I've got. I'm going to go work on the server stuff. And so we just okay. kind of ended up working in parallel. Um, he, he was solving the problem of how do I satisfy the server query? Whereas what I was doing on the server side of stuff is I was giving you really simple hooks for server side middleware that said, okay, here's the start of the query. You figure it out. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, you know, he picked that up and since he picked that up, oh, great. All right. So now we had this parallel development effort going where, um, I was solving the front end problems and he was solving the back end problems. So this is so you mentioned a lot. This is how we do queries with EQL. How do we do any kind of changes? So yeah, so changes are done through a mutation system. So it's sort of a CQRS idea, and, and David Nolan pioneered uh, that bit. Um, mm-hmm. the, the basic idea is in Clojure, you know, we can quote things and we can just turn them into data, right? So we can make something that looks like a function call but isn't really a function call that can carry the idea of, we want to make this change through all of the layers of the distributed system, right? So in a web app, full stack web application, uh, we want to almost always make some sort of change to the UI, if nothing more than to tell the user, oh, we're doing it, right? Uh, some sort of feedback when the user interacts with us is, is almost always something we wanna do. And then maybe that's all we want to do. Maybe it is just, uh, I wanted to fold open that accordion, right? That's, that's all that mm-hmm. needs to happen. Um, but maybe it's, I want to check that to-do list item. And now it's completed. And I'm in a full, full stack scenario, and I want that to save to the database. So the idea is at the UI layer, you shouldn't be concerned about who you've got to talk to, how you talk to them, when you talk to them. You should just be able to say, when the user clicks this button, I want to invoke this operation that looks like a function call, looks like a closure function call, mm-hmm. but really is just a data structure that is a list with a symbol in it and a parameter list that that the transaction system will record and then interpret to figure out what to do as a result of that request. 
Mm-hmm. So, so that's the, the concept of mutations in, in, in Fulcro. Uh, so you submit these as a transaction, and any given mutation can have an optimistic effect, so an immediate change to the local mm-hmm. client database that updates the UI. So we don't wait for the server. Right. We just do the update on the client. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, and that's optional. Right? If you wanted to wait for the server and then update the UI, you can do that. But typically, you want to do something to the UI. Right? Like I said, you may right. want to show a busy indicator. And then when you get right, the response, right. you stop the busy indicator. Right? Mm-hmm. So typically, you want to do something optimistically like right now. The UI should tell them it heard them. Mm-hmm. Then the transaction processing system goes and looks at the definition of mutation. And the mutations underneath are technically just a multi-method. There's just a multi-method that receives all of these dispatches based on the symbol. Now, multi-methods have the unfortunate, uh, the fortunate bit of the multi-method is they're extensible, right? You can you can mm-hmm, keep right. adding stuff to them ad hoc. So this is a great way to, to have an extensible way of mutating things, right? Is a multi-method that, that you just add dispatch on symbol to. The problem with multi-methods is they're not navigable, right? So, so what do you mean say, by that? When I say def method mutate and then some arbitrary symbol, um, when I go and look at my UI code and it says transact check to do item, if I hit my code navigation key on my IDE, it has no idea how to code navigate to check to do item, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's not a function. It's it's mm-hmm. it's some dispatch value that's on a, a multi method. Right. And of course, you could probably, I mean, you certainly could program an IDE to understand that in this particular kind of scenario, but multi-methods are so generic that no IDE does. Mm-hmm. So what what I've done is I've wrapped those multi-methods in a macro so they, they can be, you can tell your IDE, this is a function-like macro. It defines a function-like thing mm-hmm. um, so, so that you can jump to them. Right, I, I feel like part of code sustainability, part of being able to comprehend your code, is being able to navigate your code. So a lot of systems will dispatch based on keywords. Right, they'll say do such and such, and then there'll be like a colon delete me. Right, some keyword. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. To me, that's a non-starter. It's a non-starter because I can't navigate to that keyword. If you namespace it and put a closure spec. Uh, def next to the place where it's implemented. All right, well, now you can at least navigate to the spec in most IDEs and right because it's a namespace keyword. So you can mm-hmm. sort of get the navigation. Um, but then you're stuck making a spec or putting some other artifact next to the thing. So, you know, I, I didn't like the idea of using keywords. I was really happy. Actually, I lucked into the fact that David Nolan was using symbols and lucked into the fact that then I could make that navigable. And I consider that a mm-hmm. huge, huge bonus uh, to the comprehension uh, ability of, of focal programmers, you can you can jump to the symbol and it takes you to the mutation. And the macro for def mutation is nothing more than a macro that just emits a multi-method. Um, but by making it a macro, it makes it navigable. And it also can mm-hmm. do some syntax checking, right? Like I can check to make sure that uh, um, you, you, right. you, you give me kind of a few, a few necessary things for me to be able to do something reasonable. Um, so... A mutation looks a little bit like a def, uh, looks a little bit like a reify, actually. Um, it has sections uh, that look like method calls with, with, with method names, like you would see in a def protocol, uh, where you name the different sections according to what they do. So action is the name of the section. It looks like an action function in a, in a protocol over, you know, reify um, that says, here's what you do optimistically. Mm-hmm. And then 
for each remote you've defined, you can have a section to say, and here's what you would do on this remote. So like if you have a remote named remote, you would have a section that looks like a function called a remote that mm -hmm. says whether or not that operation should go remote, uh, if it should be modified before being sent remotely. So for example, let's say uh, in the UI, you said, uh, you know, delete item, but you've got a legacy mutation on the server because you've had the application around for a while that it's named something differently, right? And so what you want the remote section to do is say, oh, well, the server's mutation is actually named this other thing. Mm -hmm. So you can do things like rename what mutation is going to run. Or in fact, you can completely rewrite the EQL that's going to go on the wire. And in fact, that's, you know, I don't want to get into that technology. I almost said something that would confuse people. Um, so if you have multiple remotes, and remember, a remote can be anything. It could be uh, uh, local storage in your browser. It could be browser cookies. It could be, uh, you know, an, a REST API, GraphQL. GraphQL. It could be anything. Um, mm -hmm. And so you can have any number of those. So your Fulcrow app, a single mutation uh, could affect as many servers as you need to affect. Um, mm -hmm. or pick which server it needs to affect. So when you submit the transaction, you have a definition for what that mutation does in a full stack sense in a, in a common code unit. It's just a separate mm -hmm. code unit that says this full stack operation, here's what you do locally and remotely. Um, and this, this is actually a pluggable system, so you can extend what sections are available in the mutation and mm -hmm. when they happen and under what conditions. So for example, mm -hmm. you get progress updates about network status. So let's say you're, you're doing a file upload. You can, you can actually watch the file upload take place in a, a mutation body section. Mm -hmm. right? So it kind of localizes all your reasoning about what that thing does, um, both locally and remotely. Mm -hmm. The transaction processing system, which is also a pluggable system, but the, the system that comes with it, I, you know, I've not seen anybody change it yet. Um, uh, it seems to seems it's been developed over. It's got it's got you know a decent number of features to it. Um, it still has a hole here or there, but for the most part, it it does everything I I need it to do. Uh, that mm -hmm. transaction processing system is responsible for uh, managing all of those interactions, right? It's it's responsible for making sure all the optimistics happen, and then uh, you know what is the order things should happen with on remotes. So, for example, uh, while you're holding the JavaScript thread nothing else can happen in the world, right? It's single-threaded environment. So you might issue three loads and two mutations. Well, now you might ask, mm -hmm. well, what order should I do those in? Should I just do those in the order the user said? Well, I, I would submit that probably not, right? Uh, reads, uh, you know, you're, you're looking for stale reads if you, if you do the loads first, right? You're going to do some loads and then you're going to do the mutations. The mutations probably just change your server state chances are if the user kind of did them all together they weren't they weren't thinking the loads would happen first and then the mutations would go they were just saying oh i need that data and that data and these three mutations um right it's an asynchronous system you don't know when this stuff's going to get answered you can't you don't have any guarantee of of sequence well in fulcro you do in fulcro it knows it's in a distributed system and the default and of course you can you can you can actually mess with this if you if you need to, but I found this default mm -hmm. to be the same default is that reads and writes that are submitted together on the same th you know thread holding right. I've got the thread. Um, they get reordered so that the writes go first, so that you're okay. guaranteed you're going to get the freshest 
version of whatever you're loading, even if you didn't reason about it well. So, so you know, when you're seeing them like all together in mm-hmm. a code block, I've got two loads and three three mutations. Uh, you think, well, I can reason about that. But remember, you're composing programs, right? You called some function that called some function that called some function. One of them did a load, another one did a mutation, another right. This stuff spread everywhere. Right. The only way it's going to like automatically make the most sense is if if the transaction system tries to help you out a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So Fulker has a lot of internals that 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 um, you know this is part of the reason why the book is is somewhat long is I'm trying to explain here's the situations you're going to run into in a distributed system. And here's where Folk was trying to help you out with that. Right. Yeah. So just to uh, maybe mention the book you're talking about is this developer guide, which is like a, a free, it's not like really like a book you can purchase. It's just like documentation for Fulcro, which I think is right. great. Yeah. It's just an online book, book.folkrologic.com. And it's just a, uh, it's, I wrote it in ASCII doc. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the later chapters are a little out of date because, you know, limited time and it's a 500 page book. It's hard to keep up to date. Um, right. But uh, but don't be intimidated by the size of the book. Part of, a lot of the reason this, the book is large is because there's a lot of different namespaces in the in the library, almost none of which are required. Like you don't have to use all 500 pages worth of Fulcro to use Fulcro. Um, I'm solving problems for me, and as I find stuff that I've written to a library standard quality, you know, I, I often open source it. So you know, there are things like UI state machine support. Half of my half of people don't even use that. You know, there's form states. If you don't like that, don't use it. You know, it's just like, um, yeah. So it's definitely batteries included, right? Yeah, it's meant to be batteries included. Uh, you know, up to a point. Um, there's certain yeah. batteries that I started including when I first started building Fulcro that that turned out to be a bad idea. And so mm-hmm. when you're uh, when you're doing open source, I mean, you know, why do we do open source, right? What's the what's the motivation here right right uh, mostly it's a, it's it's a hey let's show off right that's, i think that's why most people do it to be honest right <laughs> I, I, I did something cool i want people to see it i want to get the feedback right right and then they okay. get users <laughs> they're like oh my god work right somebody wants <laughs> actually good oh man you want documentation too um <laughs> So, uh, you know, part of my motivation to, to open source it originally was I was hoping, you know, other people would contribute things. Uh, that's another great reason to open source. I think that's why some of the bigger right. companies do it, right? Let's create an ecosystem and get some code for right. free, right? Yeah. So there's mm-hmm. that benefit as well. Um, but it is a lot of work and a lot of it is unpaid work. Um, most mm-hmm. of it is unpaid work. I have some, you know, sponsors and contributors and things, but in terms of the number of hours that I've spent on it, it's, it's way below minimum wage. Right. Um, yeah. you're not going to make a living. So you're, you are on GitHub sponsors, right? Yes, I am on GitHub sponsors. Okay. So anybody interested, just click the button, I guess. <laughs> click the button. Um, so, you know, why, why do you do open source? You, you know, you do it for those reasons. And, and I do enjoy writing library quality code. And I, I used to write for a living, uh, I used to teach software development, mm-hmm. operating system stuff and, and such in the industry. And, and I wrote a lot of the materials for that. So I'm pretty quick at writing. And so I figured, well, you know, got this big library of stuff out there. Nobody's going to use it if it doesn't have documentation. So, um, mm-hmm. right. so I cranked that out. Thanks for listening to the part one. In the next part, we will explore Fulcro library in depth. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to. 
you can share it on social media with your friends, you can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.